0: it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to PillowCube.com and getting one
1: for yourself. Of getting everybody on the same page, identifying the major aspects of of a whole system that needs to be brought together and taken to the next level just like with poverty initiatives vaccine initiatives anti-trafficking initiatives you know hiv our sector in terms of kids living without families is in desperate need of a convener model and orphan myth is is the best people out there at convener models and meta campaigns jumping in rallying as many early adopters as they can and rallying as many influencers
0: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. We've got Mike Gallagher. Mike, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess. So interesting background, private equity, you guys are changing the world and the the narrative about orphans around the world. How do you describe your background?
1: I think I would call it a journey of discovery and a journey of transformative experiences, one leading to the next, oftentimes shifting me from one strong direction into a completely different direction.
0: Well, let's start with this. Let's start with, tell us about One Million Home and your other initiatives and Orphan Myth with Lindsay Hadley and Fox River and all the, those great people. And and give us a little bit of a snapshot of what you're up to these days.
1: Well, One Million Home was born out of uh, a journey that started for me as a father. in in my own home, my wife and I went from having three children biologically to having six children almost overnight. We adopted three kids, one domestically and two internationally. And it, that transformative experience really opened our eyes to the broader need for a lot more kids that needed families than we could adopt, and really we just set out to identify the best work, the best leaders, the best solutions to this grave crisis. I did it all relationally. We started ourselves as more supporters and underwriters, and today we're we're trying to architect broadly collaborative initiatives that can really take it all to the next level. Specifically, to one million home, that's an initiative that got launched in early 2019, and it had a very specific goal uh, to transform or help revolutionize 5,000 orphanages globally. And what we had discovered was that there were orphanages out there that had realized children in their care actually had a loving parent or a loving relative right there in their community, that with the right interventions, the right long-term support and relational support could could get those kids home where they belong and and home to stay. And we watched how orphanages who had been housing kids long-term literally were getting kids home, sometimes within a matter of just months, opening their capacity to help more kids after them and finding homes, loving homes for every children in their care. And so we saw that this worked. We saw that this was right at every level. We saw where everybody wins It's a better outcome, far better outcome for far more children, far more cost effectively. And we set out to scale this to as many orphanages as we possibly could. One orphanage that happened to be housing 50 kids for their entire childhoods could end up getting 200 kids home every year. So the idea that fully implementing this solution across 5,000 orphanages is how we resulted at, hey, if we do this, if we fully implement, we could get a million kids home and then millions more after them.
0: I love it and people the website for this is 1millionhome.com but it's the number one and then million is, spent, is spelled out and and i really like your video on there by the way Of you know i like the website but i especially like the video from you on there you know th- this mini series that we're doing with orphan myth and and you know a number of you folks who have like are really making this big difference it's it's because there's a, there's so many good causes out there but what you guys are doing has such a drastic impact. And I guess it's like, it's so doable. Like, you know, I grew up thinking like orphanages were these great things. And it's so nice that somebody's taking care of these kids who don't have parents and, you know, and like to like later find out like what you're talking about of like, no, well, actually like huge percentages of them do have parents, but, you know, they, they felt like there's a better a better life for the kid to be having these resources that the orphanage is getting. And they you know, and like, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of the, the story that I grew up with doesn't actually match reality. And like what you're talking about, of like turning this existing facility who knows how to work with kids into the placement agency. I mean, that's my word for it. Like it, it just produces such great long-term results from, from, everything that i've been learning from you guys it's it's kind of exciting to see it working as well can you talk about how many kids give us a couple of stats of, of the success story so far
1: yeah the 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 group that discovered these solutions that actually identified ways that these children could be rehabilitated from the trauma of separation family trace you know finding every viable Surviving birth parent or a blood relative in the communities, preparing that family, restoring the child to the family, and then really walking with that reunited family long term. The first site that did this went from they they housed a couple hundred kids long term. When they transformed their model, they've since restored three thousand children, well over three thousand children, with well over an eighty percent long term success rate. When you when you wonder how wait how is that even the fact you know I thought they only started with two hundred kids. What happened was as they restored children that were living in their institution long term, they opened up capacity to start taking in kids off the streets. And even reports from UNICEF, a lot of attention has been on how many kids are living in institutions globally, which might be you know as many as 8 million children, but very few are paying attention to 100 million children that were living on the streets. So we talk about the dangers of institutional care, but there's a 12 times bigger population of kids living outside of any care. And so that was the the first incredible metric was that a group with a 200-bed capacity could ultimately help 3,000 children. And we we ventured to not only help them scale up their organization-run sites, but to actually move much quicker, we saw that the key was going to be radical collaboration. I think that's the biggest takeaway for what we've discovered in our industry, but what what should work really in any nonprofit is this idea of radical collaboration to scale up impact. So our focus went from going from one to two sites, which was incredibly successful, to going from you know one to countless organizations implementing these same systems and uh, models of care. So that that that's been the exciting thing about the last couple of years is we started with one site, went to two sites, then we went to fifteen other organizations. Last year, it was over 40 org- organizations. This year, it should be over 100. So with just a matter of a couple of years, we're getting, you know, coverage across an entire nation. So it's very, very exciting.
0: Well, and can you talk about your involvement with, with Fox River and Lindsay and those folks?
1: Yeah, as we were as we were looking at scaling solutions through radical collaboration, we, we recognize that there's no way this can happen just in the field. Everything we were doing was just focusing on rallying practitioners and trying to meet, you know, entrepreneurially identify where there's demand for these solutions in the field because there's this growing awareness by the practitioners themselves running these institutions that wait a second, these kids have families, these kids don't don't belong here in an institution, and we need to be part of that. We just don't know how to do it safely, sustainably, successfully. So all of our focus began there, but we recognized unless we completely Shift the mindset of the you know the Western funding Western governing side of these organizations. It's never going to be enough, and so we we really identified the need for movement generation to be paired up with this solution scaling. And I, as I discovered, Lindsay Hadley and her work, and got to know a bit more of her history and the people behind uh, that were alongside of her. I also had the the privilege to meet Joe Ritchie and Tim Shirk, others from. uh, Fox River, who worked so closely with her behind the scenes in these incredible movements. And I was just trying to learn everything I possibly could. Over time, we just got to know one another. We had many mutual friends and began to radically collaborate with them as well. So ultimately, we realized that they, they have a shared interest in global orphan care reform and, and domestic orphan care reform and foster care reform. And so just over out of the friendship and collaborative spirit, we're we're really excited to be doing more uh, true partnership with yeah. them.
0: You know, I'm, I'm such fans. You know, Lindsay, been friends with Lindsay for, we started working together like 19 years ago, okay? and But 10 years ago, we hired her to ramp up our charity, Child Rescue, and she did this amazing job. And um, her career has just like been put on jet fuel since then, right? But, you know, what she talks about, I mean, the way she really hooked us is when she talked about like the FBI stats in the US of like 60% of the kids in their rescues have been through the foster system. And like we already knew there's major holes in foster system and like the youth homelessness issue in the States is almost synonymous with child trafficking in the States, you know? But it was just like a crystallizing stat, you know, for me. And when you have kids that are not aging out of an institution, but are instead part of a family that just because they turn 18, they don't cut all ties. You know, like it just is such an obvious solution for what we're trying to affect. So it's almost like trying to promote you guys. It is like helpful in trying to put ourselves out of business. You know what I mean? So and then all the, just my years following Lindsay around the world, to her events in New York and Australia and Italy and stuff. I get to hang out with Joe Ritchie a bit because of this stuff. Right. And in like a funny turn of events, his kids moved like a couple of miles away from us here in Utah from 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 Chicago, and my 16 year old is over babysitting his grandkids right now, which I think is funny. But
1: yeah, I just he's one where you just you, you remember everything he says because it's all just so penetrating and uh, enlightening. So get, I, I was living in Chicago for some years, and getting to know them was just was life changing. Yeah.
0: Well, I think what's interesting about him too is it's not it's not all about him. You know, like the thing is when you when you have you know, when you receive such extraordinary outsized financial success, people treat you different. People treat you special. If you have any desire to be the important one, there's all sorts of people that will line up to make you the important one. Right. And he's just so genuine in his concern and questions of other people. And, you know, like I remember anyways, I could go on. I'm a fan okay but I, I want to talk about how you think any of your experience in private equity has helped you in this world
1: yeah I had the opportunity to grow up with my dad's family business which was just building companies from from regional leaders to national leaders and it was all about aligned interests and long-term partnership with the folks running the work on the ground and so I think I think, even more than you know, best practice and business principles. I think just those, those values of long-term partnership, long-term aligned interests have have directly served me in in aligning interests with the best work that we can find in the field, and really focusing on building up these long-term relationships, long-term partnerships. That's where the, that's where the work has been most productive and most rewarding.
0: So, can you give us an example? Tell us at Gallagher Industries. Success story.
1: Yeah, one incredible success story actually started in Chicago as well. There was a regional stock bottler of plastic containers. When they were first looking at that as an acquisition, I, I remember as a kid, my dad was paying attention to weather patterns because bad weather equals more windshield washer fluid sales. <laughs> and that was the platform, that was the platform business. And with that same core team, they recruited uh, a few key management to add to the exec, you know, the, the historic management. So it wasn't as if they bought it and cleaned house. They just enhanced what they were doing and focused them on higher margin activities. Over a very, very long period of time, they ended up building multiple plants for multiple blue chip companies, did some of the most high profile conversions from old materials to new. Like the the aluminum tin of Folgers shifting to a plastic container, you know, working with billion dollar brands and helping generate, you know, as much as ten percent market share gains just by re, by updating packaging. Th- those were some of the things that started with a very, you know, hu- from the humblest of beginnings and uh, most loyal commitment to the the founding team and and new vision. It's just amazing how much is possible. So, that, that was uh, an incredible learning experience for me. And I was just blessed to be able to grow up in, in multiple operating businesses. It was an incredible opportunity to learn and grow.
0: So, you know, for people today listening, maybe they have a business that's much more regional and they're interested in making it more national. What's, what's a principle that you would recommend to them?
1: It's funny. My dad always had a saying if, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jewelers. So, the idea is finding the best available you know, high character, high competency leadership that really knows the ins and outs of the industry and, and just backing them, allowing them to really not just take direction, but take ownership and yeah, just taking care of the customer like anything else. I I think those things committing to that and then constantly reinvesting earnings as opposed to just, you know, siphoning off earnings for yourself, but reinvesting every bit of earnings, taking advantage of any opportunities for leverage to grow the business in high margin activities over long-term holds where ownership and, and operators are completely aligned. It's we, we saw in multiple industries where it was just amazing what could be accomplished. Even from groups that had been just kind of bumping along for decades, There, there is a true opportunity to take things to the next level.
0: You know, I think about this idea of like really, really a talent people, right? And we've all been told that in business like a thousand times, right? And and yet for me, like I remember the first time that I hired somebody who was like very obviously, drastically superior <laughs> to me at that job. And it was like the whole world opened up. It was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is like... This is amazing, you know? And uh, I I think one of my favorite books on that is, do you know the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, came out with a book last year called No Rules Rules? Have you heard about this one?
1: Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: But he just talks about like how the way Netflix has grown, the way it has, the way that they've gone from, you know, people scoffing at them. Oh, you think you're going to make your own shows? You're just a distributor. You could never do this to like making stuff that's literally won Oscars. You know what I mean? Right. And he says it's like, they treat it like a pro sports team. And they're like, we are, we are willing to pay like for admin staff or just more, more average staff. They go like, Hey, what's the average, what's the average pay? Let's pay a bit above that. But for those, those leaders, those truly creative types that can make this huge difference from a leverage standpoint, like they'll pay whatever it takes to have the best. And and you, you look at what they've done compared to everyone who laughed at them. And it's, it's a pretty compelling argument, you know? Anyways, endorsement of your principle there.
1: Yeah, and it's just, it's just so rewarding to stay where, where you add that to an existing team that has created something special, but then can, can take it all to levels that otherwise wouldn't happen, where everybody wins in every direction. That, that's always the most rewarding.
0: You know, my, my next question on that, I think about like, as you're talking, I'm like, I'm such a Warren Buffett nerd. And so so many things you said line up with Warren Buffett's investment philosophies, right? But a question I have is, you know, he is always looking for people where the senior management has a track record of taking a dollar of retained earnings and making more than a dollar with it. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of reinvestment happens <laughs> where Somebody makes a dollar in profit and invests it in something that nets the business less than a dollar. Right. And so I'm interested in any thoughts that you have of, you know, leaders who are trying to help the rest of their team think about capital allocation that way, instead of just assuming this is our money, we can do what we feel like is a good idea. Like bringing that discipline of like, you know, is this invested dollar going to, is what we're investing it in worth more than just keeping the cash? Do you have any ideas about, helping grow people's skill set there.
1: Well, just what we learned is just to, to to put the same standard of what you do with with retained earnings with profits that you would have, you know, a capital raise and and try to really maximize that internal rate of return for what you're doing with your profits and 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 we being an asset rich businesses with earnings, we, we always tried to maximize the use of leverage as well, where it's, it's pretty special how many, the kind of returns you can generate with, you know, good use of leverage as well as, you know, high IRR yeah. standards. And, and especially when, when you have aligned interests in a company where it's not about generating returns for outside capital, but where everybody's committed to a, a long hold for the business and you just keep reinvesting, keep reinvesting, keep keep building and multiplying the earnings that way. That's what we learned. Yeah, that, yeah, That's what worked for us in, in some of these traditional businesses.
0: So I'm interested in, and I, I have some more stuff I want to talk about on the charity side next, but thinking about leverage, you know, it, it is, it's so powerful and yet it's the downfall of so many folks too. I'm interested in any kind of thoughts of like, nobody thinks they were over levered until they find out they were. Do you mean, nobody's like, oh, this is a risky amount of leverage. I probably shouldn't do this. Maybe they have a twinge of that. But do you have any thoughts? Do you have any principles of like how to, you know, how to train teams, how to think about appropriate leverage and getting the getting the most benefit you can without undue risk?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, for for our businesses, it was always just looking at the whole capital structure. And, and, you know, what's, what's the the optimized capital structure and leverage can just be an amazing way to, to allow for, for more growth or higher returns, but it all needs to be risk adjusted. It all needs to be sound, but it's, it's just a way to maximize growth, maximize impact with, with the available capital structure. So like anything else, it can be, it can be overly used and foolish, but, but when, when built into a, a sound capital structure and, and growth strategy, it can be incredibly powerful. Do you and, any... and leverages I think go ahead. Sorry, I was just I, I'm just thinking too, because I hear Lindsay Hadley speak speak so much of leverage as well. And and there's there's uh, more, <laughs> than more than just assets that huh? can be leveraged. Yeah. And it, it really is an important principle. You can you can never over leverage, but there's also there's also it, it's also merited to consider how leverage can be incorporated into any, any strategy to, you know, to really optimize growth and optimize impact.
0: Yeah. Any, any rules of thumb or any, any like tests to say, is this an appropriate amount of debt? Any things that you ask, you know, like you say an appropriate amount. And my, my concern is people's judgments on an appropriate amount. How do you, how do you gauge what meets the tests of an appropriate amount for you?
1: This is funny because I, I think now I would need to actually step back and say, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jewelers. Mm. And I'd look, I'd look to the folks that are, that are running the business at hand and really monitoring all the different levers, all the different trends within the business and, and within its context and follow their lead. It's all about empowering uh, those leaders. And so I, I wouldn't liken myself remotely to a CFO that that would give you far better counsel than me but it it's more just a recognizing that pattern across multiple businesses and multiple industries and even our our work in in as a nonprofit just understanding that leverage can be a great thing just like entrepreneurial risk any kind of risk can be a great thing and that's something where i i've paid a lot of attention to cuz now in our nonprofit there it's fraught with risk because we're dealing with broken families traumatized children international all, all regulations sorts of, yes and and yet you can bring an entrepreneurial spirit and and problem solving you know an ent- a risk tolerance to accomplish things that that must happen and and when you really take things to their logical conclusion people aren't realizing that so much of this red tape so much of this stalled action in the name of risk prov- is actually creating a far greater risk to the children. So, so I think that's maybe where I would segue, you know, talking yeah. about capital structures to more no, it, uh, it's, entrepreneurial risk of any kind and leverage of any kind. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's interesting. You know, and I really like this idea of go ask some CFOs across your industry. You know what I mean? Like get get various data to benchmark against. You know, it's funny this idea. I, I see so many folks in the world don't get much done because they're fo- so focused on risk avoidance where when I look at, you know, like look at the kind of work you're doing. I mean, so many of the nonprofits in the world and specifically for me, one's dealing with kids. Cause that's what we've focused on. Right. Risk avoidance often means kids don't get helped versus that like entrepreneurial risk mitigation, you know, risk minimization, like not avoidance, but minimizing. It sounds so similar, but they are different. People who are willing to like, they're willing to go after it and they put so much mindset and so much effort into, you know, shoring up the holes rather than just avoiding anything that has holes turns into kids, get help, families become happy. And and I guess I have a lot of respect for people who are willing to like deal with the messiness instead of just avoid it.
1: Well, it, I mean, it started for me, as I said, just as a dad, we, we had a great thing going. We had, you know, we're business owners, we're, we have a great marriage, great life. We got three great kids, health, you know, all life was good. And we were stirred in our heart to, to adopt. And specifically, we were stirred to adopt a child with special needs. For us, that was the first awakening where we, we started to understand that there was a group of, a massive group of kids out there that um, were the most likely to get abandoned and the least likely to get adopted. Because they had some, you know, known special need, and so you talk about risk to my life as a father, as a provider, you know, <laughs> everything else. It was one of the most extreme scenarios, and yet that's the whole point. It's like, yeah, there's so many reasons not to do this. There, and I can identify with so many men out there where the first reaction is absolutely not. it, it it's part of my my origin story because the first time my wife asked me. Hey, you think we'll ever adopt someday? Literally, the thought that went through my head was, I'm not raising another man's kid. You know, I was I was very arrogant, very hard hearted, very against risking, you know, my agenda, my ambitions, my dreams, or anything else. And today I look back and I just thank God that I didn't miss it. I, I thank God that we took that risk. Not that anybody should just run into it with with without really knowing what they're getting into. But these are the kinds of things that have brought so much greater reward, so much greater love and bonds of our family, so much greater perspective, so much greater humility, faith, hope, love, the rest. Because we did, we took, we took a huge risk on behalf of one child. And now we're just trying to do the same thing. We're trying to inspire more to, you know, to take risks on behalf of one child or one orphanage or one system of care. You know, it, it, it's it's going to require some risk and it's worth the risk.
0: Well, I guess I also have a lot of respect for what you guys are doing. You talk about massive collaboration and you think about like the strength in numbers, like the way you guys are reducing risk by by getting together. And and can you talk a little bit more about Orphan Myth for people who aren't familiar?
1: Yeah, Orphan Myth is this this incredible meta campaign or convener campaign with with Lindsay Hadley, Fox River, a lot of the folks that were behind Global Citizen. And other massive campaigns, they identified that the work of child protection and orphan care reform and foster care reform is is in grave need of convening, of getting everybody on the same page, identifying the major aspects of of a whole system that needs to be brought together and taken to the next level. Just like with poverty initiatives, vaccine initiatives, anti-trafficking initiatives, you know, HIV, our sector in terms of kids living without families is in desperate need of a convener model. And Orphan Myth is, is the best people out there at convener models and meta campaigns, jumping in, rallying as many early adopters as they can, and rallying as many influencers to dramatically raise the profile of this issue, a dramatically integrate the best work in the field and then dramatically grow the best work in the field. And and the point of it is to be a real turning point that suddenly it becomes unimaginable that, wait a second, we're just leaving these kids as orphans. We're housing them in orphanages or letting them bounce around foster care or forgetting about them on the streets. Like we want there to come a day, just like with anti-trafficking. It's unimaginable that this modern day slavery exists. We want this to be unimaginable that kids are left without families for entire childhoods, and we really hope that this is an absolute turning point. That this first meta campaign can be the beginning of what really coalesces far broader audiences, far broader support to get as many kids off the streets, out of orphanages, out of foster care, home to permanent families where they belong.
0: And that website, people, is orphan myth, like M Y T H. Orphanmyth.org. O-R-G. You know, I mean, again, for us, I look at this idea of like, imagine if 60% of those kids that the FBI is recovering, were not, were not trafficked in the first place because they were in a, they were in a forever family. Do you mean like that's potentially, I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it's potentially the biggest lever to be pulled for counter child trafficking in America is fix the holes in the foster system. Have these kids not age out of institutionalization, but have having been in a family in the first place and, and you know, not not be vulnerable to the predators and traffickers in the first place because they're in a forever family.
1: You know, one of the things that uh, it's the same. Well, it, yeah, it's the same also with incarceration. You talk about trafficking and uh, prostitution, but it's the the profiles of inmates are are you know, even higher numbers. A Uh lot of them came from the foster foster system and they've Ah. lost that first line of defense. You know, a loving family, it doesn't matter rich or poor, but just a loving permanent family is the first line of defense against all these evils. So that's, that's absolutely a core. We resolve that and we resolve so many of the downstream brokenness and, you know, challenges that face our, all of our communities.
0: You know, what I've really enjoyed about this conversation and, and watching your videos that I hadn't really picked up on is, you know, I've been following Lindsay Hadley around for years, right? And so I got, you know, I get to meet the Joe Richies, I get to meet, you know, Hugh Jackman's wife, Deb Jackman and the Hopeland people and, and J.K. Rowling's uh, Lumos, you know, their work working this, you know, on these trips to New York with Lindsay or something, right? And what I had never put together is... This idea of getting the kids off the streets, you know, like, I feel like you have put a point on that in a way that I haven't really seen as much yet. And it, it, it's, it's a big deal to me because kids on the streets is just so absolutely synonymous with kids getting abused for money. And, you know, you look at all these, I mean, there are a lot of orphanages around the world. If those were a lot of placement agencies around the world, you know, taking kids off the street. Like this orphanage, it's like back to my love of Warren Buffett. It's like a compound interest machine (laughs) of, of kids' lives changed. Right. That, that one is, I mean, it's, it's simple to understand, but it's so profound thinking about how much infrastructure already exists. They're already in country. They already have a reputation. They, you know, like talk about a repurposing for a higher purpose. I mean, like the definition of entrepreneurship from the 1700s in France was something about like a person who can take a resource of a lower value and raise the same resource to a higher value, like that existing orphanage, you know, like your story before somebody that houses 50 kids or houses 200 kids now helps 3000 kids. I mean, it's like the definition of entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship.
1: Well, no, that's exactly what we've seen. And that's exactly what's beginning to grow the, the, the great hope now is that this can really scale up and and we always say scale at standard we are dealing with very complex very challenging issues of trauma and family brokenness but we've seen you know at very compelling numbers that it's it's absolutely within reach and it's already happening and th- the other side to all this is and we cha- we we've actually our our first round of solutions that we offered up we realized there was remarkable demand like practitioners from 30 nations traveled to our early workshops when we were actually walking through how this, you know, transformation of your model of care can happen. They paid their own way, you know, these poor practitioners from all these different nations. So it shows you that that yeah, there's a lot of abuse and corruption, but mostly people got into this work because they care about the kids. And when they realize that there's hope for a better life for the kids in their care, even if they're they need to risk their own jobs, losing donors, you know, some of these common natural fears that come up. They're willing to do it. And and those are the folks that we want to really get behind. And there's lots out there. And they have millions of kids either within their care already or within their reach, right? You know, the the kids living on the streets in their district. That the, we have a real sense of urgency with this because it seems logical and simple enough and there's enough track record, there's enough, you know, movement where we can just continue to grow this, we have a greater sense of urgency because a lot of policies have changed. There, there's anti-orphanage sentiment. You know, even at the United Nations General Assembly a couple of years ago, they, they enacted a lot of recommendations with which are right on. The the policy aim is correct. Children should not be, you know, readily allowed to to be raised in institutional care. But the unintended consequence of that may be where these things just get defunded, cut off, shut down in the name of child protection. And we'll miss this glorious opportunity to, to upgrade to leverage the system. This. Well, there's, there's a global infrastructure, you know, well over 100,000 institutions. There's land, building, beds, staff. And, and not only that, there's recurring revenue from donors. And it would be a travesty to cut all of that off in the name of child protection without any semblance of alternative forms of care even built up. And so, so we're trying to move quickly. This is one of those things where we keep saying there's greater risk in moving too slow than moving too fast in this, in this day we're in.
0: Well, and, and again, back to local infrastructure, local staff. I mean, how, how criticized have people with good hearts and a less effective operating system been criticized. Oh, you know, somebody comes over from the States to do to do good and it's not as effective as intended. Sometimes it has the opposite effect. You know, there's so much criticism for that, right? And yet, like a system like yours, where you take existing in-country facility, existing in-country staff, they know the customs, they know the laws, they know which cops to avoid because of corruption. They know, like, do you know what I mean? There's so much context. There's so much just sensitivity to local issues cultural understanding and and upgrading those people you know upgrading the operating system you know that's fascinating to me well, one other thing that I want to talk about is I am pretty interested in these accelerators you guys are doing Wh- where are they and how do they work
1: yeah the whole idea of accelerator is that we we discovered much needs to happen in the field and it needs to happen over time and it needs to happen with mentoring and people that who've people who have gone through it before helping others do it for the first time. We started where we first believed it was just training and tools that were going to change everything. And we discovered actually only about 28% of all these you know folks that are receiving our training are actually implementing. And we couldn't even know if they were doing it effectively and successfully and safely. So the idea was for the folks who've been through the training who are fully committed to completely revitalizing how they care for children to come alongside them with, with full service consulting agreements and uh, to walk with their whole systems change. Because again, the idea isn't to clean house with the existing staff and leadership and governance, but to completely just shift the the mindset, the model and how the money is being used. So the, the idea of accelerators is basically to walk closely over many months with organizations that are fundamentally changing their model of care. And make sure that there's complete implementation and then ongoing validation, that they're they're getting the kids home, home to say, home to stay, and doing it all safely and sustainably. So the the first accelerator, like I said, it began going from the group that had gone from one to two sites. The name of the group is called Agape Children's Ministry, and they started in Kasumu, Kenya. They opened their second site with by basically transforming an existing orphanage in the city of Katali. And we worked closely with them to set up this whole new department of their organization, totally dedicated to to helping empower other organizations to do what they had done so successfully. So within one year, it took them 10 years to, to be helping close to 800 kids a year. It took them one year to double that number because they basically empowered enough other organizations to repeat that success and now we just you know continue to improve and multiply it from there that's that was the first accelerator and that was really the prototype for what we're trying to do now in other nations we we had two other regions of africa where we're grooming the next accelerators and where are those this year we're one is based in sierra leone and one is based in zambia we're excited about the work in sierra leone because it's again, they're they're actually focusing on getting children in institutions home and opening up capacity for street kids in the area. Yeah, we definitely want to work into Southern Africa. We have other emerging partners in uh, Mozambique and elsewhere in that region of Africa. So there's our our strongest history and track record is in Africa, but we have this whole, like I said, we've we've been engaged with practitioners from 30 nations, and even though the solutions need to be very contextualized it it's remarkable how common the issues are and how how powerful the solutions are when properly contextualized and deployed in the field so this year we're we've uh got these exciting new leaders based in uh, southeast asia as well as the caribbean and uh, potentially in india and elsewhere where where that we want to repeat the success that grew so quickly across kenya and um Uganda and other areas of, of Northeast Africa across the African continent, and then begin this in these other regions of the world that hopefully in, within the very foreseeable future, the the kind of multiplication that took place in, in Northeast Africa can really replicate to other areas of the world. And And the thing about this is we go into these partnerships under this banner of radical collaboration and open source solutions, sharing of best practices. And because we're doing it in, in that manner, every new practitioner, every new leader, every new region, we're always learning what's working, what's not. And the whole nature of this is really accelerating even child protection issues so that everybody's benefiting, everybody's able to really accelerate how quickly they can change their model of care, how quickly they can achieve those high standards of safety and sustainability. And that's that's where we really believe that we're well on our way to thousands of orphanages transforming.
0: It's exciting. You know, I know we're kind of winding down here. One of my favorite questions is what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received?
1: Well, I think it would be build relationships. Don't build an organization. Really focus on the people and the relationships and out of the overflow of that. That's where the real impact and the real reward comes over over the long haul. The other is don't build a family ministry at the cost of your own family. We've seen Havoc wreaked on families in the name of, you know, helping children without families. And so those, those have been really our founding values, especially for my wife and me as uh, co-founders, that we try to live and, and exemplify. And we, we challenge anyone else in this work to make sure that you're, even, even though there's such a desperate need to scale up solutions to do movement generation it can't be one where anybody's a means to an end that would be the great irony right to treat someone as a means to an end on behalf of these these kids who are you know deemed less than a person because anytime you treat someone as a means to an end you're treating them as less than a person so we try to have real integrity with these issues care about the people care about our own children and families as we're trying to help those that need to get home to families themselves you
0: know it's just this is such a issue close to home for, for our family, you know, my, my mother-in-law has been quite open about her story and, you know, she was, she was trafficked as a 12 year old in Santa Monica, California, and she was the fourth generation in their family. And, you know, luckily she broke the cycle, so it didn't happen to my wife and, and it's pretty close to home for us, but, you know, she ended up being abandoned by her mom for a number of years, starting at age 13 And she, you know, lived under the pier in Santa Monica, California and kind of with these other kind of street kid families for years in LA. And I do think like, where where was child services? Okay. I think that, I think that one all the time, but you know, there wasn't a well-oiled machine to help little girls like her, 13 year old girls living under the pier in Santa Monica, California. There wasn't a great system for that. And, you know, I, I, I've had the chance to visit a few different continents and, you know, I, I watch your video and it makes me think about a trip I got to go to Nigeria and there's, you know, visually, there's a lot of scenes from Kenya that feel like where I was in Nigeria some of that time. And I think like, you know, my mother-in-law cal- in California, what about those kids? Do you know what I mean? And so again, you know, yeah, that's go ahead.
1: i not, I, I, we've, we've held a, we have a very strong conviction, too, about our own community. We, we've fostered here locally in our community where we live, and we're, we're excited to be you know, in the early stages of architecting a U.S. accelerator. I've already shared that we have these, th- this traction, this proof, this proof of concept that, that people from so many different nations are already benefiting from these types of interventions, with child rescue and rehabilitation and reunification and really starting. I I think the other huge takeaway that we need to pay attention to is this idea of seeing these families of origin as part of the solution, not the problem. They're the last place people are looking to, to be the solution and to invest in. And they should be the first place. Any one of us in our families get into desperate situations and, and yet all in all, most of these children want to be back with their biological families. Most of these biological families want to to get out of their desperate circumstances, well, and and stay connected to their children. Listen, and so we're we're very focused on that.
0: You know, so so in this, you know, in our family story, my wife's family story, you know, she was thirteen, and her younger brother was like, I think he would have been ten at the time, and the, you know, their and their their mom left him in this hotel room and she went off to vegas with some guy and and after about a month the hotel people said hey we just can't let you live here for free you have to leave i'm thinking why aren't they calling child services okay but but my but lori got her younger brother on a bus and sent him to northern california to live with their grandma and but she decided not to go and there wasn't anyways there wasn't enough of a system to help make sure that she went to You know, her grandma's like, okay, you kids get on the bus and come and said, Lori, just put her brother on the bus and didn't go, you know, and you're probably not a decision that responsible society should be leaving up to a 13 year old at that point. Right. So I would love to, let's stay in touch. I want to hear what you're doing in the States and I want to have you come back on the show and talk about it. If that, if you want to do that.
1: Okay. That sounds great, Jess. I just, I love meeting you and I love being with you today. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for all the great work you're doing. Everybody, please go to 1millionhome.com and uh, check out all the work that Mike and his team have done. Thanks, uh, thanks for your time, Mike.
1: Thank you again, Jess. Okay, bye, everyone.